I'm Nicola Kelly, and this is Silenced, a podcast from human rights organisation Article 19. In each episode of this series, we'll hear the stories of journalists and activists around the world whose governments attempt to rein them in and cover up the truth. On the 16th of October 2017, the renowned investigative journalist Daphne Caruana Galizia was assassinated outside her family home in Malta. For decades, she had shone a light on the dark corners of the island's elite, exposing corruption at the highest levels of government. Her son Matthew, who has continued his mother's legacy, holding those in power to account both in Malta and around the world, was there on that fateful afternoon. I wanted to start by saying that the 16th of October 2017 was a day like any other. But people are going to get the wrong impression. Because for my mother and I, a day like any other meant, at that time, something completely different to what it would mean for anyone else. My mom was under a huge amount of pressure. She was facing around 50 defamation suits all at one go. The government officials, politicians, together with business people, were attempting to cut her off financially. The Minister of Economy had frozen her bank accounts. It was just an onslaught. My mother was so isolated. She had been politically isolated. She had the opposition party against her, the governing party against her. Uh, She was isolated from most other journalists. She was just completely alone. But she was continuing her work. I mean, she was publishing her articles, carrying on with the work of her magazine. She even even made me a salad that morning because I was so busy with the Paradise Papers, which was the project that I was working on with ICIJ at the time, that I even didn't even bother having lunch or breakfast. And she had to run out because she had a meeting with the bank. She didn't want to talk about her accounts with bank officials over the phone. So she had a meeting at their head office. I mean, the morning passed quite quickly, I think, because we just both had so much to get through. I remember her typing out her last article, walking out of the house and telling me, when I'm back, you can use the car because I was borrowing the the car my mother was leasing, like we would share it. I said, okay, great, like maybe I'll go out later, but for now, nothing. A few minutes later, she came back into the house and I remember her saying, ah, I I forgot the checkbook because her accounts were frozen and she couldn't use any of her debit or credit cards. My dad had signed a bunch of checks and left them blank. And my mother would use these to to pay for things, to pay for petrol, shopping, like whatever she needed. She picked up the checkbook, went back out, said something like, okay, no, I'm really going. And that was the last thing I ever heard her say. She, She started the car, I remember hearing some music coming from it. And then I heard the explosion. I mean, it's, it felt like seconds later, but it must have been minutes. It was so loud, I just jumped out of my chair because it, it couldn't have been a firework. It was too loud to be a firework. 
It couldn't have been like an accident in the road or anything like that. I immediately had the sense that this is something bad. So I went straight to the door. I remember the dogs barking crazily. They must have been panicked with the noise. And I just kind of felt the blood drain from my drain from my body. Um, I remember running to the gate, um, finding the neighbors outside. They asked me what was going on. I said I had no idea. And that's when I started running towards the smoke that I could see rising from from down below in the valley. And that's when I was faced with all that carnage, the road on fire, car on fire, the horn blaring. It was just like if you had to sort of open up your 3D editor and design a nightmare in 3D. It was like that. It felt like that. I had this sense like immediately from that moment that the rest of our lives were just going to be a never-ending fight. You know, up until that point, working with my mother, I I had this sense of hope that we were going to reveal the findings of our investigation and it was going to have consequences for the government. It was going to have consequences for the businesses that were engaged in corruption with government. So I had this sense that we were sort of on, a, on an onward march, you know, towards the full truth about what was happening in Malta. But from, from that day, I, I had a sense that we were, we were going to have to fight a war. It, it felt like that. And it was going to be a war that, that was never going to end. I mean, it was going to have to take the rest of my life. And it's been like that, in fact. My mom always loved reading. She would read everything she could find. And she formed her own opinions from a very early age. So one day when she was stuck at home with me and my middle brother, Andrew, we must have been about two years old and one year old, she opened the newspaper and could see that there was absolutely no coverage of the kinds of things that she was dealing with as a young mother or the kinds of problems that people her age were facing or the kind of hopes and dreams of young people or even much about the sort of wider political situation of the country. So she just felt that she had to write something about it, had to put her opinion out there, had to sort of inject some of her thinking into, into the newspaper that she was reading. She wrote a letter to the editor and she was really surprised when she heard back from him saying not only that they would publish it, but that they would pay her to write a regular column. And this is how she started. Her column was called The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. It was named after one of her favorite films. You see, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns and those who dig. But of course it wasn't like, um, (laughs) 
it wasn't sort of like this Disney story, you know, where my mother was just rewarded with this paycheck every week to write this column and sort of we all lived happily ever after. It wasn't like that at all. Her column was a huge success, but there was a huge amount of intimidation that she faced and um, a huge amount of misogyny that she had to deal with. Uh, people would assume that my dad, her husband, was writing the column or her father was writing it. They just couldn't understand um, how a woman would be capable of forming her own thoughts, let alone writing them down and getting them published in a newspaper. After all, she was not just the first woman to, to have her own column published in Malta, but she was actually the first person to have her column published under her own name. All opinion pieces in newspapers up to that point were pseudonymous. I mean, people who had a column in a newspaper had them published under fake names. I mean, it was just so childish when I think about it. So, of course, when a sort of 21-year-old woman without a university degree with two young children at home had this bi-weekly column published, it just, everyone thought, I mean, how on earth can this be? What's happening? I guess that sort of makes her loss even more poignant, even worse, because it just showed what Malta lost, you know, this woman who was so ahead of her time and so intelligent, so knowledgeable, such a skilled writer, and she's gone forever, and our country's not going to have another person like her. Malta's a country of only 500,000 people. It's just a kind of once in a few hundred years thing that someone like that comes along. The law which protects our freedom of expression is constitutionally superior to the law which prevents us from writing stuff about politics on the internet the day before an election. It is superior. And the police cannot understand why I will not abide by the law and sit at home quietly and not write anything about politics. I said because the world is full of irrational, abusive laws and if everybody obeyed them, they would never get changed. I remember one particular column where my mother was writing about the Good Friday processions in Malta, which until about 10 years ago were a huge thing here. Everyone would go to the Good Friday processions. It was something that was taken so seriously. No one would eat meat, no one would eat chocolate, no one would drink. You would just spend the day on the street with your family or on the balcony of your house watching the processions which to me as a kid was extremely boring. Um, and I remember when I would spend the weekend at a friend and it would happen to be Good Friday, I would be dragged into watching this procession and it was just so boring. A whole day of these kind of religious activities. And I remember <laughs> going to school the next day and my teacher saying that she was so scandalized because my mother had written that um, she would rather spend the afternoon drinking limoncello on, on the terrace at our house and reading a book or something like that than watching the Good Friday procession. And one of my closest friend's mothers was so infuriated that um, she wrote a letter to the editor condemning and chastising my mother for daring to say that she would drink alcohol on Good Friday and so on. And of course, I remember this because 
to me it was something I mean so innocuous my mother was just writing about drinking a limoncello on Good Friday and it caused this massive outrage so to me that was sort of while for most people I knew this was normality right this kind of conservatism this kind of misogyny um, this kind of small-mindedness for them that was the normality what my mother was saying was abnormality what she was writing was abnormality a woman expressing those kinds of things was completely abnormal to them everyone i know first thing in the morning we read look up stuff because everybody she, reads her she yes. writes at night uh -huh. so we wake up and we see what what's going on first thing in the, in the morning first you read thing. It one of the things that my mom's readers really loved about her work was that you got the feeling that you were following a sort of um, a serialized satirical novel about Maltese public life, except that it wasn't a novel, it was all true. But what I mean is that you had the same characters, you know, in it. this was sort of the universe of um, public life in Malta, it was populated with these characters and they constantly featured in my mother's work. She gave them nicknames. The Prime Minister of Malta from 2013 to his resignation in 2020, Joseph Muscat, for example, was the poodle because he was seen as the sort of lapdog of the former leader of his political party. So my mother nicknamed him the poodle and that became his nickname. That's how everyone came to know him. The first memory I have of an act of intimidation that's really visual because, of course, there are memories of phone calls and letters. My parents kind of trained my brothers and I to answer the phone from a very young age because for them it was sort of a social skill that we should learn. And there are these memories of picking up the phone and having someone shouting and swearing down the other end of the phone, but I'm just like a seven or eight year old kid. I have no idea what the person is saying. I would just put down the phone and call to my mother and say in a sort of very blase way, there's a person shouting down the other end of the phone. And because I had no idea what it was about or what the person was saying, it wouldn't occur to me that that was a threat. It's only now, it was only much later as an adult that I realized, okay, this is what was happening back then. But the first really visual memory I have is of coming home from school. My brothers and I went to school just 10 minutes away from where we lived. We're walking up to the door, the front door of the house, and I see the dog that we had at the time. It was a collie, like, you know, like Lassie. It just kind of lying down on the on the doorstep and as we get closer to it i can see blood all around kind of on on the doorstep and all around the, the dog's throat and it was the first time i had seen so much blood as a kid so i didn't really know sort of what it was or i must have been about nine years old my mom was shocked she I remember her not really knowing what to say, but um, my brothers and I must have asked her sort of what happened and she must have said something like the dog's dead or something like that and because I saw the blood and the sort of damage around the dog's throat, its throat had been slit, I said something like maybe it got bitten by a snake 
because we, we lived in the countryside and sometimes there would be snakes in the garden or in the house. It would have sort of squeezed under a door maybe and gotten inside. And my mother said something like, maybe, yes, maybe it was a snake. You know, I was so naive as though a snake could have killed a dog in that way. But later I put two and two together. Um, about two years later, my parents put us to sleep. You know, I had school the next day. And I remember waking up and hearing sort of some noises and people in the house and things like that. But I went back to sleep. And anyway, when I went back to school the next day, my teacher came into the classroom. She was holding that day's newspaper. And she pointed her finger at this article in the newspaper, like there was a sort of small item. And she, she said, look, isn't this your house, Matthew? There was a photo of the front door of my house. I said, yes, yes, it is. And she said, so someone set the front door of your house on fire. And I said, what? I, I don't know anything about that. My parents just told me that there was an accident. They lit some candles and left them in front of the door. And the candles fell over and there was a small fire. That's, that's all I know about. When I went home, I told my mom and my dad that my teacher had shown me this article. <laughs> and they, they explained what more or less what happened. Um, I, I had read the article anyway, which said that someone had set the front door of our house on fire and that this was an act of intimidation, that it was a sign that my mother should stop. Um, it, it was like a sort of warning shot that my mother should stop writing. I need to explain that in our part of the world, which is Southern Europe, setting someone's front door on fire is a very sort of universally understood sign. It's part of the language of this part of Europe. Doing that is like the final warning before you attack them personally, before you kill them or before you maim them or whatever. It's telling you that you should shut up or that you should pay up or whatever. So I guess that's the sort of first really visual memory I have of an act of intimidation. The dog with its throat slit and the door of the house set, being set on fire. Of course, over the years, like I said, I, I made these connections. I sort of put two and two together. I read my mother's articles. I read the news. I, I started to understand what was happening. And I could understand that there were people who wanted to intimidate my mother into silence. I guess the sort of unique thing about it is that I thought this was normal. I thought that if you were a journalist, this was something you had to deal with. I, I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was completely normal. You're a journalist and this is what happens to you. And rather than being afraid or intimidated or feeling sort of an overt sense of fear, I, I, was, I was really proud of my mother. I was proud of the work that she was doing, of not giving in to these threats, that she still cared for her family and found time for her family. I was just really proud of her. I grew up being really proud of her. And learning that you shouldn't give in to these acts of intimidation. It was only much later when I started working with other journalists that I realized, hold on, this, this is completely not normal. Most journalists never have to deal with any of this. They never have to deal with their front door being set on fire.
the international response to the murder was... It was what was necessary, because if it had been any other way where the murder would have just been brushed over or reported as just another murder, things would have been very different. And I think this is what the people behind the murder expected. They believed their own propaganda that my mother was subhuman, that she was a non-entity that she was irrelevant. This was a, a word they really liked to use, that my mother was irrelevant. They believed their own propaganda. And I think the international reaction really took them by surprise. It took the prime minister by surprise. It took the prime minister's chief of staff by surprise. It took the person who is being prosecuted for my mother's murder, Jürgen Fennec, by surprise. And I think it set them on a back foot. The reaction from within Malta was um, very difficult to deal with. Of course, there were the vigils, which, I mean, the vigils that are still ongoing, that are really uplifting and, and really fill me with a sense that there is solidarity and there are kindred spirits. And I had that sense from the very first day when I saw people sort of pouring out into the streets holding candles and posters and banners and marching and protesting. But at the same time, there was all of the propaganda from the governing party. The awful things that, I mean, people who work for government were saying. You had a policeman who posted on Facebook saying that my mother was a cow dung and she found her place, you know, as cow dung, fertilizing a field. That's literally what he said, sort of alluding to the fact that her body parts had been scattered all over the field. It was just awful, you know. If a, if a police officer is saying this, you can imagine what other people were saying. And of course, they were saying it because... They have been brainwashed by all of the propaganda that the state and the governing party had spent years and years and years producing and broadcasting and using to target and intimidate my mother and dehumanizing her. And of course, you had, I mean, all of these people who felt like they were protected in furthering that dehumanization, in insulting my family and insulting my mother, um, making fun of the way in which she was murdered. They felt that they were doing the political party that they supported a, a service, a favor by doing this. That for the political party they supported, the murder of my mother was something to be celebrated. And they were all joined together in celebration of the murder. This was the atmosphere on social media. Prime Minister Muscat, if your office, the office of the Prime Minister, has been involved in a murder, what else we still don't know? So, from the very first day, the assassination of my mother was seen by Joseph Muscat and his government as a public relations problem. For my family, it was seen as a corruption problem, as an organized crime problem, as a human rights problem, as a press freedom problem, as symptomatic of, of the state of, of our country, of our democracy, of the state of democracy in, in the European Union, 
of the of the checks and balances, not just in Malta, but but also in the entire EU system. Obviously, there were multiple failures across the board within Malta and within the European Union. But for the Muscat government, it was none of these things. Because all of these things were for him his objective to create a justice problem for Malta was his objective. To create a democratic deficit for Malta was his objective. To create an organized criminal group in Malta was his objective. To decrease press freedom in Malta again was his objective. All of these things were his objectives from day one. So he spent most of his career setting up a smokescreen to distract from the fact that he was doing this. My mother's murder was a problem for him because it risked sort of taking away that smokescreen. So Joseph Muscat's mission in the aftermath of the murder became sustaining the smokescreen of his government. That um, this was a, I mean, a feminist government, a pro-LGBT government. They had a new way of thinking. They were anti-conservative and... And so on. This was the smokescreen that he was creating, right? So what was the first thing he did? Press conference, go on CNN, say that his government is doing everything it can to solve my mother's murder, that Malta does not have a problem with press freedom, Malta does not have a problem with corruption. These are bad people who are operating outside of the country, fuel smugglers in Libya, these are the people who wanted my mother dead. This was what he was doing. And in the meantime, he had people working behind the scenes, covering the tracks of those who were really responsible for the murder. We found out that the people who are now being prosecuted, a group of people who are now being charged of actually carrying out the murder, the hitmen, so to speak, we found out that they were going to be arrested weeks after they did, we were told, less than an hour before the arrest took place, they were told that they were going to be arrested. I mean, a week, if not weeks, before the arrest actually took place. They had actually gathered together in a single place because they were told that it would be less suspicious looking for them to do that rather than to attempt an escape. But the government was only in this position because Europol had been involved in the investigation, not because the government of Malta wanted Europol involved in the investigation, but because that's the way things happened, and the government could not put a stop to it. It would look too suspicious. So they had to accept that the hitmen were going to be arrested and took the position that it would be something that had to be managed in a public relations sense that the arrest had to be sort of videotaped, a dramatic video had to be produced. There had to be a press conference where the prime minister would say, case closed, we arrested the guys who did it, that's it, the story ends here. Malta is a normal country, um, we've brought the perpetrators to justice, and so on. For us, as my brother said, the day of the murder, when, when the hitmen were arrested, it's as though the bomb had been arrested. They were tools used to carry out the murder. 
by people far more powerful who knew Joseph Muscat, who socialized with him, who did business with him, who did business with his friends, who are part of his organized criminal group that had taken over our government. The culture of cover-ups, I mean, certainly exists in Malta. It's incredible what takes place in such a tiny country. I feel as though I am once again in the same situation that we were in in 2017, where I feel as though I cannot keep up. Every day is just one scandal after another. The other day I was having a conversation with, with a journalist who was visiting in the UK, and I, I remember telling them, I mean, this is not to sort of put down the gravity of, of what is happening there, but I, I asked them, is this really the biggest thing that you have to worry about with your government? That the Prime Minister took a bottle of wine to a party or had some drinks in a garden? Because, I mean, we are dealing with things that are a thousand times worse than that, and there are things that come up every single day. So when I see the news coming out of the UK... I almost start laughing because I, I feel like these are like children in comparison to what's going on over here. Again, I, I feel like I just cannot keep up once again. It's the same situation that we were in in 2017. Just one scandal after another. It's a bit like you, you start pulling at a string and you're just shocked at what you uncover at the end of that string. It, it drags out all kinds of monsters it reaches a point where you you start to understand why people almost don't want to do it. They're, they're just scared of what they're going to find out. But, of course, the only way to stop this, the only way to end this culture, to change it, is to get people to do that. I mean, people have to confront these issues. They have to confront the corruption. They have to speak up publicly about it. They have to go on the record. They have to not be afraid. Um, they have to stand in solidarity with each other when they're threatened or intimidated. Without that, our culture is never going to change. So we really work hard to encourage this change in attitude. But it, it's difficult because still, I mean, the, the party that's in government will use every tool at its disposal to protect its interests. And those interests at the moment come before the interests of the public, come before the interests of the country. Thank you for listening to Silenced. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about what Article 19 does on Twitter, where we're at Article19.org. 